All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to look at the topic of baptism together, try to answer some different questions that usually come up about baptism. And uh, all this is being done in preparation for next week. We'll be meeting at Topi's house, and um, anyone who wants to be baptized will be doing that um, next week. So I'll give you some more information about how that's going to work. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you once again and praise you and thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here together as a church family. Uh, God, we thank you so much for your word, just even having it in a language that we can read and understand this morning. Um, God, help us to never take advantage of the fact that uh, we can examine um, doctrines and topics and know what your will is in regards to those things because we can read the Bible in a language that we understand. And so, God, we thank you for those who worked um, hard in years past to bring us an English language for us to read and understand this morning. So, God, I pray that you would teach us together today that the Holy Spirit would um, speak to us, that we would be able to be encouraged, that our just understanding of baptism would be increased as we seek to share the gospel and make disciples, that we would understand that baptizing new believers is a process in that. And so, God, I pray that we would all take responsibility for knowing about baptism so that we can communicate the truth of baptism to those that we share the gospel with. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to try to um, cover a pretty big topic this morning. Um, a lot of y'all have kind of sat through this material before when we've gone through um, either discipleship stuff uh, back at Mount Gilead, or I think there was a couple of times when I talked about this topic on a Wednesday night. But hopefully it'll be a good refresher so that everyone's kind of on the same page as we get ready to launch this church together. One, we want everybody on the same page just doctrinally and how we understand baptism. But secondly, we're doing this so that we're all on the same page as far as obedience goes. That as we start this church together, as we begin to move towards membership, that we all can feel confident that we're unified and that we've all been baptized. We've all responded in obedience to what God's word has called us to. Um, so in your notes there, just kind of working through some different questions. What is baptism? Um, the Greek word that I've I didn't put in your notes, but I've given it to you before. The Greek word is babto or baptizo. It's, a, it's what we call a transliterated word. Does anybody know what a transliterated word means? Anybody know what that means, transliterated word? Anybody? Transliterated word is when you take a word from another language and you don't translate it into a similar English word, you take it and make it sound more English, basically. That's, that's transliteration in the context of the English language. So we've taken a, a word that was originally in the manuscripts, bapto, baptizo, and we've made it baptized. So we've taken it and made it sound more like an English word. So it's a transliterated word. The definition um, that they were using in the Greek was to dip completely, to drown, or to immerse. That was what the original definition for this word was. To dip completely, to drown, or to immerse. And it wasn't a, a religious term necessarily. It was simply their verb for drowning, for immersing. They would talk about baptizing something. Um, you know, you might would, you might would take a, a meat and baptize it into some type of um, uh, boiling water to cook it, something like that. Like you would take something and immerse it. So it was a common word used 
to talk about putting something completely into something. The term definition that I give you, the way that we understand baptism as a church, it's a ceremony of a believer being dunked in water as a sign of repentance from an old life of sin and submission to a new life in Christ. Salvation comes through repentance and faith. We are united to Christ through faith, and that union is symbolized through the ceremony of baptism. It's similar to a wedding symbolizing the commitment already made in the heart of two being joined together. When, when we have a wedding ceremony, typically that wedding ceremony communicates a, a decision that's already been made by the two people participating in that ceremony. When you stand before um, the person officiating that wedding and you walk through the vows, most often those two already know the vows. Most often those two have already written the vows. And most often those two have really already agreed to that commitment. It's a formal ceremony demonstrating that commitment, reiterating that commitment to everybody that's been invited. But for the most part, they've already made that decision. The same is true for baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of a decision that's already been made to follow Christ. Okay, it's a decision that that, that person has made to turn their life away from sin, to immerse themselves, to submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's a public ceremony to demonstrate that that's happened. I put a note there in your, in your notes that as a verb, it is never used in a passive sense. Anybody remember the difference between a passive verb and an active verb? No. <laughs> <laughs> a passive verb is something that happens to you. An active verb is something that you actually are doing the action. Yeah, and, and that may sound funny for me to be emphasizing grammar and English, but for some of y'all that were in discipleship year one with me, we've talked about how important understanding the English language is if we're going to apply scripture to our life. That passive verbs, passive verbs indicate that Something is being done to the subject of the sentence. So you could say the student was taught by the professor. The student is having something done to him by the professor. An active verb is when the subject is doing something. Now that plays a big part in the New Testament when we begin to realize what is my responsibility in sanctification and when is it my responsibility to have something done to me in sanctification. There's a big difference there, understanding when we're supposed to be doing something and when we're supposed to submit to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to do something to us. Can you make sure that uh, door is unlocked? Okay, so in the context of baptism, in the context of baptism, um, baptism is always used in an active sense, so the baptizing is always done to the water meaning people are brought to the water, which is going to help us understand why we dunk and immerse as opposed to sprinkle, okay? Because of the understanding of between passive and active verbs in the New Testament, okay? Okay. In the, in the ceremony, yes, someone is baptizing you, but when we're talking about the person and the water, in the New Testament, it's used in the sense that the person is being brought to the water as opposed to the water being brought to the person. Okay? But yeah, baptism is something done to you by somebody else. We baptize each other. We don't baptize ourselves. Okay. 
um, a little history about why we even do this. Because um, if you're a new if you're a new believer, maybe you've never you never grow up in church, and you share the gospel with someone like that. The whole concept of baptism may seem funny, may seem um, very traditional, very legalistic. Hey, I want to follow Christ, but I'm not going to bother going through this whole baptism ceremony type thing. And it's important that we're able to understand the history of it so that we can communicate the importance of it. Okay? The history of baptism, first in your notes there, um, it starts with the baptism of Jewish proselytes. In the context of church Christian history, it started in the Old Testament with Jewish proselytes. Anybody know what a proselyte is? Proselyte is spelled P-R-O-S-E-L-Y-T-E-S. Oh, yeah. Proselyte. Anybody need me to spell that again? All right, now that you know how to spell it, does anybody know what it is? Yeah, it's a convert. It's someone who was not part of the Jewish nation, not part of the Jewish religion, that would have converted to the Jewish religion. They would have been considered a Jewish proselyte. Someone who was not a descendant of Abraham, but recognized that they wanted to follow the God of Israel. They would proselyte. They would become a, a Jew, not through birth, but through a decision to become part of the Jewish nation. And there was a process that they had to go through to do that. In my notes it says, Gentiles converting to the Jewish nation underwent circumcision. Okay, so if, if you were a male in the Old Testament and you decided, hey, I want to follow the God of Yahweh, or I want to follow the God of Israel who is Yahweh, I want to, to become a part of this nation. If you were a male, no matter what age you were, you had to be circumcised. And then for everybody, there was the aspect of being baptized, and there was an offering of an animal sacrifice. And all of this was designed to show a decision to forsake old religion, old way of life, and embrace the new life of Israel. So there was this, this process that they went through to communicate to Israel and also to demonstrate to everybody else, hey, we're done with being a Canaanite. We're done being a Moabite. We're done being Egyptian. Like we're, we're, we're bringing ourselves into the Israelite nation. We see this understanding and process of baptism shift when we get into the New Testament with John the Baptist. So second in your notes, baptism of John the Baptist. Baptism of John the Baptist. We see this in Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of John the Baptist was a baptism of repentance. It was only for repenters. And it was meant to show that a spiritual relationship is more important than a physical Jewish relationship. Now here's the thing you want to remember about the baptism of John the Baptist. He was asking Jewish people to do what Gentiles normally had to do. Their whole concept in the Old Testament was, if you're a Jew, you're okay. If you're in the Jewish nation, you're okay. If you're a descendant of Abraham, you're okay. And if you're not, you definitely need to go through these ceremonies and get in, and that'll make you okay. John the Baptist shows up and begins to expand this concept of baptism and says, nobody's okay just because they're born of Abraham. Salvation doesn't come through physical descendants. You have to repent of your sins. You have to repent of your sins. And so we see this radical shift start to happen. And that's why there was controversy about what John the Baptist was doing. That's why there's this discussion going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees with John the Baptist. Is that they need to do what's being asked here. They need to turn their back on thinking just because I'm from Abraham I'm okay. That, that this offer of salvation is for everybody and you're not exempt just because you're from Abraham. Third, we see another transition happen with the baptism of Jesus. Baptism of Jesus. In verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well, pe- uh, well pleased. Jesus identifies with baptism what was going on there to set the example and serve as the ultimate picture of his death and resurrection. There's another shift that happens here, and this shift is evident in the fact that You don't see Jesus and his disciples asking people to be baptized that decide to follow Jesus, right? Like there's no, hey, I want to, like you don't don't see any conversation with Zacchaeus about him needing to be baptized yet. You don't see the the guy that's in the uh, graveyard with the the demons. When he he has those demons cast out, remember we talked a couple weeks ago about how he says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go home, and I want you to share what's happened at home. There's no concept about being baptized there. So it kind of stops here with Jesus being baptized. We see it picked up next in your notes with the baptism of early Christians. Baptism of early Christians. In Matthew 28, Jesus getting ready to leave his disciples. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it gets reinstituted as Jesus leaves, and the church age really begins here, the the New Testament church age that we understand. Baptism gets reinstituted, and it's something that we do for new believers. We see this carried over in the book of Acts, chapter 2. 
Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter shares the gospel with this crowd. They're cut to the heart. They're convicted. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the early church begins to baptize people that want to follow Christ. There's repentance and baptism that happens to demonstrate that they truly want to follow Jesus. So that's where kind of the the history of baptism comes from in the context of the church. Now, baptism was also a part of of, um, uh, false religions, but we're kind of tracing the history through our understanding of Christian history. The meaning of baptism, I'll give you four four meanings of baptism here that I want to make sure that, that you remember and understand. Number one, it's our celebration of the grace of Christ in our life. It's our celebration of the grace of Christ in our life. Okay. It's our celebration of the grace of Christ in our life. Whenever we have a baptism, it's for the person being baptized, but it also serves as a time of celebration for all Christians that are witnessing that. It's a celebration of the gospel because baptism is a picture of the gospel. When we immerse someone in the water, it's the picture of them dying to their self, dying to sin. It's a picture of Christ and his death for us. As we raise them out of the water, it's the picture of a a turning to a new way of life. The Holy Spirit now lives inside of me. I'm going to walk in the spirit, not walk in the flesh. It's a picture of Christ's resurrection which is a picture of our future resurrection that we're waiting for when Jesus comes back. Everyone gets resurrected. We all get new bodies. So some of that resurrection has been fulfilled for us now. We live new lives. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But there's also a future fulfillment to our baptism, that one day we will be raised new bodies, bodies and and people that have died before us will be raised again and given new bodies that will never die again. Number two, it's our public proclamation of the gospel. It's our public proclamation of the gospel. It's a symbol. It's an outward sign of an inward change. We are identified with the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. Romans 6 is um, probably the most, one of the most popular passages about baptism and what it means. It says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's our public proclamation of the gospel. Number three, it is our heart expression of appealing to God for forgiveness by being immersed in the work of Christ. Essentially, baptism is us saying, put me into Christ. That's the quote there in your notes. Put me into Christ. 
It's us asking God the Father, view me as though I have been put into Christ. View me as being dead to sin. View me as already paying my debt to sin. Christ has paid that on the cross for me. Put me into Christ so that what Christ did is now seen as me doing it. Put me into Christ. View Christ's obedience as my obedience. Put me into Christ. Acts twenty two twelve. It says, and one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. You have this aspect that baptism is an act where we're calling out to God for salvation. The act of baptism doesn't save us, as we'll see here in a little bit. But the process of baptism is us calling out to God, calling on his name for salvation. Put me into Christ. Galatians 3.26 For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's that concept again. That we're putting on Christ. Put me into Christ. That's the picture of salvation. Let his death count for me. Let his obedience count for me. And then fourthly, it's our declaration of new allegiance to Christ. So we celebrate it together. We celebrate it when we baptize other people. And you see that similar when we go to a wedding. You go attend a wedding, and most of the time, for those that have been married, it conjures up memories of when you got married, and someone else's wedding, in a sense, becomes a celebration of your own wedding. It's it's a glorious thing as you begin to think back about the love that, that you share with your spouse, it brings up memories of the decision that you made to love your wife. Sometimes it even serves as a, as, a, as a time for you to remember some of those commitments. Same with baptism. It, it should conjure up images of when we got baptized, the, the things that were going on in our life when we made that decision to follow Christ. It should also serve as kind of a time of recommitment to remember, hey, that's true about me. I've been put into Christ. I need to, to live more and more like that. But for the person being baptized at that time, it's a declaration of new allegiance to Christ. There's a declaration that they're now dying to self, surrendering to a new Lord. And I shared with you before, to me it helps to view it like a press conference announcing that you have joined a new team. You know, we, we, we've talked about in the, in the sports realm with... Um, Right now in, in the NFL, they're, they're catching up because they were on strike and the season's trying to start. So you've got these players who their contracts have run out with their old team and they're now joining new teams. And they have press conference to announce this so that fans know who the guy plays for now, so that other teams know who this guy plays for now. And we've talked about the fact that a press conference is essentially this player saying, 
You can now expect me to show up at this team's facilities to wear this team's uh, clothing to show up and play for this team on Sundays. And that's what baptism serves. It's a, it's a, it's a press conference. It's us holding a press conference to announce to the world, I've changed teams. I used, to, I used to play for myself. I used to play for this world. I used to pursue the things of this world. You can now expect me to live differently. You can now expect me to show up every day and do things differently because I follow Christ now. And I'm having this press conference to announce that this is the decision that I've made. A decision that was made behind the scenes most likely, but now it's coming out in a public form as a press conference. That's what baptism serves for us in the church. I put a note here that in the early church, it seems baptism was inseparable from salvation. It was the immediate expression of someone coming to Christ. You know people wanted to get saved by their expression to get baptized. For us today, I think that we've unfortunately replaced baptism with things like the sinner's prayer and walking an aisle. In typical churches, you'll have a guy stand up, share the gospel, and then say, if you want to be saved, if you want to be saved, repeat after me. Or if you want to be saved, go ahead and stand up and walk down here. We'll have someone right down here waiting for you to fill out a card, and we'll walk through the gospel again with you. Usually those are the visible signs that someone wants to get saved. In the early New Testament, it was someone saying, hey, I want to be baptized. That was their version of the sinner's prayer. It was how they expressed their desire to follow Christ. And I think, unfortunately, we've separated it too much in churches today. Now, there's some really good churches with pastors that I love to read and listen to that... um, Their church has a strict standard. They won't baptize anybody in their church if they are under the age of 18. Now, there's some positive aspects to why they do that. They want to make sure that a kid truly understands the gospel. They want to see fruit demonstrated by someone who has responded to the gospel before they baptize. There's some protection that they feel is necessary. They don't want to baptize a kid too early. False assurance given to that kid. He's never responded to the gospel, but he thinks back on the fact that I was baptized when I was five years old, so I must be okay. So there's some positive reasons for why they do that. There's also some negative reasons, I think, that that come out of that. One is that it's the first act of obedience for a Christian. And you're essentially telling uh, a five, six, seven-year-old kid, hey, um, I'm willing to walk through the gospel with you. I'm even willing to lead you in a prayer, and I'm going to ask you to start being obedient to Christ. But I'm not going to let you be obedient to this part just yet. So I think there's some dangers there. It doesn't mean that you should baptize a kid as soon as he says, hey, I want to follow Jesus. But I don't think that every kid should have to wait until they're 18. So to kind of give you a glimpse of how it's going to function here at Sovereign Hope is that we're going to allow that to be a parental decision as to when kids are going to be baptized here. I don't want to enforce a strict standard and say, hey, you've got to be 18. Like, I don't care how much growth you're showing. Until you're 18, it ain't happening. But we want to sit down and and help parents and and do whatever we can as a church to help a parent in guiding their kids to the gospel, communicating it clearly to a child, and then helping a parent reach a decision about when baptism needs to happen. To me, it's better to leave that to uh, a parental decision. But I think in the New Testament, it's clear that they are usually very closely linked. 
someone responds, repents, and wants to be saved, and baptism happens very quickly after that. You see people saying, what do I need to do? And, and people responding and saying, you need to repent and be baptized. Make it happen. Do this. Not because baptism saves them any more than, than, than the sinner's prayer walking an aisle. Even the sinner's prayer is something that happens after a decision has really already been made in the heart. They're very closely together, but it's not saying magical words. I know when I was growing up, I, I had a poor understanding of the sinner's prayer. And I said the sinner's prayer multiple times, especially when I heard a pastor say it differently than the previous pastor that I heard. If he said a new phrase or a new word that I didn't repeat the last time I said the sinner's prayer, I felt like I had to say it again. I had such a poor understanding of what the sinner's prayer even was. In the New Testament, you don't really have this sinner's prayer thing. It's you want to be saved, come be baptized and demonstrate that you get the fact that you're buried into Christ and raised to walk with Christ. So you notice that I put baptism is for those who repent of sins and place faith in Christ. That's the pattern you see in the New Testament. It's people who repent and put their faith in Christ. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 8, verse 12. We'll just kind of run through these real quick because I want, to, I want you to see that this is the normal pattern. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women. They believe it. They're baptized. In Acts chapter 10 verse 47. This is right before this. You've got the Holy Spirit coming upon Gentiles. This is still a new thing for Jewish people. They're, they're still reprogramming their minds to realize that Gentiles are included in God's redemptive plan. Holy Spirit is, is filling these Gentiles. They're kind of like, all right, I guess Gentiles can be saved the same way that we're saved. Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. These guys respond to the gospel and Peter's like, we got to baptize them. I mean, they clearly have the Holy Spirit just like we do. We got to go ahead and get them in the water. Can anybody give me a reason why we shouldn't baptize these guys? They get saved and they're baptized immediately. Acts 18.8. Acts 18.8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. You see it over and over again, believing and being baptized, believing and being baptized. It seems to happen very closely together. And then in Acts 19.1-7.
And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Here you've got an issue where um, Paul kind of shows up and says, hey, you guys, you guys need to catch up with us. Like, we've been progressing in our understanding of the gospel. This was a confusing time because you have Old Testament and New Testament kind of overlapping each other. So there's some things that were happening here that don't happen now because we're well into the New Testament. And so you had some people who hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. We don't have situations now where someone gets saved and we have to send someone to get the Holy Spirit to them. Like that happens immediately. You get saved, Holy Spirit indwells you because we're well into the New Testament now. But Paul communicates, hey, you guys got to catch up. Like you should have already been baptized by now. You've already believed. We've got to go ahead and catch you up here. So baptism is for those who repent and place faith in Christ. Lastly, here you notice, why should I be baptized? Why should I be baptized? Number one, to obey the command of Jesus Christ. To obey the command of Jesus Christ. Okay, we'll stop here for just a second. We're going to talk in just a minute about sprinkling, immersing, baptizing babies, not baptizing babies. Okay? In response to number one, you have to be baptized to obey the command of Jesus Christ. It's, it's an obedience matter. Okay? It's an obedience matter. Which means... You personally have to examine yourself to determine if you have been baptized based on what you see Scripture teaching. That's my concern and issue. It's not my concern and issue to make everybody in here be baptized and understand baptism exactly how I understand it. Okay, there's debate about... um, you can read online, there's a debate going on, or I guess a couple of years now. Uh, John Piper in Minneapolis and Wayne Grudem, who a lot of you know through his theology book, it's the main systematic theology book used in good churches. Um, they go back and forth about whether or not they think you should allow people who have been baptized as a baby to be members of your church. Wayne Grudem and his church... You have to be rebaptized to be a member of his church. If you were baptized as a baby, went to a church where they did that, you have to be rebaptized. John Piper, John Piper says, look, if you believe that, that your baptism was done in obedience, if you believe the scripture teaches that way, we're going to welcome you as members of this church. And I think it's better to err on that side in saying that if, if, if a person believes that they, have, that they have been baptized according to what scripture teaches, then we want to allow that to count I guess in a sense, here as being a member of Sovereign Hope. What we're not okay with is someone knowing that they haven't been baptized, like they got baptized before they were saved. That's happened for a lot of people. 
you, you thought you responded to the gospel, you got baptized, and then years later you're like, I don't think I was ever really saved. I need to be saved. But then they never got baptized again. If someone believes that their salvation happened after baptism, and they believe that they haven't been baptized according to what Scripture teaches, we believe they need to be baptized again. Because they never really were baptized. Thinking that it's embarrassing to do it when you're this age, or it's not that big a deal. Yeah, I know that I got saved after I was baptized, but it's really not a big deal. God doesn't really care. Is a sign that you don't fully understand that this is an act of obedience. It is a big deal. I mean, Jesus, Jesus mandated it in the Great Commission. It's a huge deal. It's the first act of obedience. You can't be walking with Christ faithfully the way that you need to if you haven't been baptized. Now, I've talked with some of you individually one-on-one, and we've worked through when do you think you got saved and where does baptism fall in that timeline. And this has deeper issues of you figuring out, when did I get saved? Because some of us have had those experiences where we prayed the sinner's prayer multiple times, and we made rededications and recommitments multiple times. But this is important for you to know, because there was a point in time in history, if you're saved, there was a point in time in history where you went from being unsaved to saved. You don't progress into salvation. You progress in your understanding of the gospel, but there's a point in time in history where you pass from death into life. Now, you may not know the day and the time that that happened, but you need to have a pretty good idea about the experience and what was going on when that happened for your own assurance, but also to be able to share that with someone else. I mean, it's pretty hard to share the gospel with someone and someone say, well, can you kind of help me understand this better about you telling me when you got saved? Ah, it's kind of a tricky conversation. I'm not exactly sure when I got saved. It's kind of vague. Like, I mean, that's just confusing to the person you're trying to share the gospel with. I need to confidently be able to communicate. Yeah, I was five years old. We were living up North Georgia, right on the Tennessee border. My dad was going to Tennessee Temple. I was in Sunday school, heard the gospel presented. I was cut to the heart. I was convicted. I came home and talked to my mom. I said, Mom, I need to be saved. Mom walked through the gospel with me, took me into the bedroom right on the campus of Tennessee Temple, and I prayed to receive Christ. Like, I don't remember a whole lot of what was going on. I'm thankful that my mom wrote it down and wrote down things that I was asking and things that I said. That's been a benefit to me to be able to go back and read our conversation. I'm thankful that my mom did that. But I can go back and see that things that I was saying, I clearly understood what was going on. And I can communicate that to someone when I share the gospel. So for you personally... Over the course of this week, over the course of the next coming weeks, you need to evaluate when did you get saved, when did you get baptized, and does your baptism match what you personally see Scripture teaching about baptism? Secondly, not only has Jesus commanded it, he set the example. So we, number two, we do it to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We do it to follow the example of Jesus Christ. Number three, we do it to follow the normative path of becoming a disciple. It's a normative path of becoming a disciple. We've seen it being normative in the book of Acts. It's part of the Great Commission. You get saved, you get baptized. We do it to number four, follow the example of the early church. So we obey the command of Jesus Christ. We follow the example of Christ. We follow the normative path of becoming a disciple. 
We do it to follow the example of the early church. And we do it to publicly unite with the family of Jesus Christ. It's our, again, press conference. And we want to build this church through new converts primarily. We know that people are going to come from other churches. At orientation this week, I was sharing with my class. This is who I am. Sharing with parents. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. And, you know, and, I, and I'm brought the fact, hey, you know, part of the reason I'm here is because we're planning a church in Sonoy. And I had several families come up to me and say, hey, we've been driving pretty far to our church. We might come visit your church. We know that we're going to add people that are already Christians to this fellowship. But we primarily want to add con- new, new believers, new converts. And we want them to unite with us by having a press conference that says, hey, I'm with you guys. I've responded to the gospel. And I put most churches require it for membership. As we move towards membership, as we begin to sit down with you guys individually, it's something that we're going to talk about with you individually. We want to know, when did you get saved? You can't be a member of a church if you're not a Christian. I mean, that, that should be clear from Scripture. You can't unite with a body of believers unless you're a believer. Now, you can come to this church all you want. You can come and be an attender. But we're not going to unite you in membership unless you've responded to the gospel. And part of that is being baptized, following in that first act of obedience. All right? Um, a couple other things real quick that I'm going to try to walk through with you. I'll email this sheet out to you. A lot of you have this sheet from when we went through discipleship year two at main event. Um, I'm going to walk through this real quick. I will send this out in an email. If you personally want to have a copy, it's front and back. It addresses issues about why we dunk and don't sprinkle. It addresses issues about whether baptism saves or doesn't save. And it addresses issues about why we won't baptize infants here at Sovereign Hope Church. Okay? Um, First, why do we dunk and not sprinkle? Number one, John the Baptist baptized by dunking, not sprinkling. He baptized by dunking, not sprinkling. And um, John 3.23, if you want to jot some of these things that I'm saying down on the back of your notes, you can. Um, John 3.23, you're not going to find explicit passages that say, hey, you've got to get them all the way in the water. Don't sprinkle. You're not going to find that. Yeah, the word the word implies that, and then you have um, implicit statements. Is that correct or ex- implicit? Is it's implied? Yes. Um, twenty three, John three twenty three. John also was baptizing at Aninon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Why did they go there to be baptized? Because there was a lot of water there. Now think about it. If, if we're doing the traditional sprinkling method. Now we're going through this not to criticize other methods. We're going through this to show you why biblically we're holding to this belief here at this church. And I want you to understand that we're, we're not holding to it because of tradition so much. I mean traditionally that's what the Baptist church has believed. But I want, you to show, I want to show you that tradition is rooted in what Scripture says. There was a lot of water there. Now, if you think about it, if, if we were to go through the method of sprinkling, it really wouldn't take a lot of water to sprinkle a lot of people. Okay, let's just picture that there's a multitude of people coming here. If I'm simply sprinkling water on people, probably my greatest concern is not, we've got to get to a major water source. 
Because we've got to get enough to get on our fingers to sprinkle a whole lot of people. No, it seems to be, hey, we need a big area of water because we've got to get people into the water. It's an implicit statement here. They went to places to baptize because there was a lot of water there to do it. Um, Mark 1, 5. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Seems that John the Baptist set up his ministry in a place where there was a lot of water. He's not going to people to baptize them. He could have easily gone and drawn some water out of a well and gone to people to baptize them. But instead he says, if you want to be baptized, you're going to have to come out here because we need a lot of water to do it. Because this is how we're doing it. Okay, um, the early church baptized this way. Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight, verse thirty-six. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. This is Philip and the eunuch. The eunuch said, "See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized?" And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Again, the eunuch recognizes, hey, i got to be baptized. Hey, here's a lot of water right here. They stop the chariot. They go down into the water. It would have been inconvenient to get all wet if, there, if it wasn't necessary to get all wet. I mean, Philip could have easily said, stay here on dry ground. I'll go get a little bit, bring it up here, and then we'll do it right here. No, they both go into the water to be baptized. And then number three, it's the best picture of the gospel. And this is ultimately why I think it's important to do it here. In the form of immersing. That's why we're having a pool party. Because we need a lot of water. we got to go somewhere where there's a lot of water. Toby and his mom have graciously said, come over to our house. we got a lot of water in our pool. You know, we could easily do baptism here if we wanted to sprinkle. We could just fill up a cup. But no, we want to go somewhere where there's a lot of water. Why? Because it's the best picture of the gospel. I put in these notes, are we sprinkled with Christ or immersed in Christ? When we talk about being immersed, baptized, Romans 6, 1 through 4. Remember, we're baptized into his death. We're baptized into his resurrection. See, I want all of it. I want as much of that as I can get. It's not a a right or wrong necessarily with sprinkling and immersing. It's just that if I'm trying to picture to you what the gospel is, I want to use the best picture. And to me... Putting you deep into the water and saying, immerse you in Christ is better than being sprinkled with a little bit of Christ. Does baptism save? There's there's some churches that teach that baptism saves, that you can't be saved unless you've been baptized. Some reasons to believe that it doesn't real quick. Mark 16, 16 is a passage that a lot of people want to turn to that say baptism is necessary for salvation. And at the first reading, it may look that way. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That seems pretty straightforward, right? If you're just reading that, hey, how do I get saved? Looks like I need to believe and be baptized. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's important to note the second part of that verse. He doesn't say whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. He says whoever does not believe will be condemned. The condemnation is applied to people who do not 
believe, not to people who lack baptism. Okay? Baptism is a, is a response to being saved. It's a, hey, put me into Christ. But we're not condemned. We don't go to hell because we haven't been baptized. We would be held accountable for not believing in Christ. Secondly, if baptism were absolutely necessary for salvation, we would expect to find baptism stressed each time the gospel is presented. However, many times it's absent. Acts 2.37. You're going along. You've picked up the book of Acts uh, for the very first time, which is crazy. Just a side note, me and Chris Henson were watching a video recently. Um, do you remember what country that was? Where they got the... Um, I can't remember which book of the Bible it was. Yeah, there was this country in Asia. I mean, they were had like the whole village was out on this landing strip. I forget. I think it might have been the book of First Corinthians that was coming to them for the very first time on plane. The whole village is lining this airstrip, and they are chanting and celebrating and and just crying out for joy because First Corinthians is coming in for the very first time. Like. You, 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 some of you have experienced like wanting the next movie in a series to come out or the next book in a series to come out. These guys are waiting for the next book in the, in the Word of God to come to them. And it was really cool to see like um, their amazement and, and just expectation for this. But let's say you get the book of Acts. You're reading through it for the very first time. You come to verse 37 in chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, we've already read this. Uh, they were cut to the heart. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. So you initially read that and say, okay, if you want to be saved, you've got to repent and be baptized. But if you continue on, you come to chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, and you read in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You catch that in verse 19? Repent, therefore, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Absolutely no mention of baptism there. Nothing. It, it's strikingly absent. You would expect that if baptism is necessary for salvation, that every single time the gospel is mentioned, that it would be mentioned as well. And it's not here. You can also see that in Acts 16, 30-33. Thirdly, the thief on the cross was promised eternity with Christ without baptism. I mean, that's, that's the trump card for me. Someone says, I've got to be baptized to be saved. No, I don't. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and he's in heaven. Jesus says, you'll be with me today. You don't have Jesus turn to him and say, gosh, I wish you'd have thought about this earlier. It would have been way more convenient for you to be not on a cross because we've got to baptize you now. No. He doesn't say that at all. He says, hey... You're responding in belief to who, to who I am. I'm going to see you in heaven. Like, this is about to be over, and it's about to be really good for both of us. It's about to be really good, which is also another argument for why Jesus didn't go to hell, which some people believe as well. He says, I'll be with you today in paradise. Next, Paul differentiates between the gospel and baptism, placing a higher priority on the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.11. We won't read that because we're running out of time. Uh, both Acts 15 and Romans 4 are written to emphasize that no external acts play a role in salvation. There is evidence that the seal of the Holy Spirit is already received before baptism. We saw that in Acts 10 where those guys had already been saved but hadn't been baptized yet. Um, 
The word baptism does not always mean water baptism. The context dictates whether it's talking about the physical act of dunking in water or the spiritual reality of being immersed in the work of Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 is another passage that a lot of times people want to say means you have to be baptized to be saved. But in that context, that passage is talking about the spiritual reality of baptism. You have to be baptized into Christ. You do. You have to be immersed into Christ. Not through the act of baptism, but through the act of salvation. Um, I'll let you read through the, other, the rest of these when I email it to you. Um, last thing here. Baptizing infants and not baptizing infants. And when we say infant, we mean someone who is not yet made a profession of Christ. We're not talking about should you baptize a five-year-old who says he's gotten saved. Do we baptize newborn babies or should we not baptize newborn babies? And what I want you to understand is that the question centers on whether baptism is a sign of the new covenant in the same way circumcision was a sign in the old covenant. People that believe that you baptize infants believe that circumcision should be carried over in the form of baptism in the same way in the New Testament. Now, there are good people that have searched Scripture that have come to that understanding and come to that belief. And I've got friends that believe that. It's not a point where we break fellowship. That's why I'm saying. If we have someone that comes in, we sit down with them, they're like, hey, I'm, you know, I just moved in from Michigan, um, I want to get... I want to become a member of Sovereign Hope. Great. If you, you know, tell us about when you respond to the gospel. I was such and such age. You know, great. You know, when did you get baptized? Well, I was actually baptized as an infant. Grew up in a Presbyterian church. Um, okay. Tell us why you believe that that's the biblical way to be baptized. Like, what's your understanding of, of why did you get baptized as an infant? You know, they're able to kind of bring us through and say, yeah, you know, I believe that you know, baptism and circumcision carry over in the same way in the New Testament. They're able to, to demonstrate that it's not just something they've been told. It's not just their tradition. They have a, a biblical understanding for why they believe that's their form of baptism. Then we're not going to tell them that they have to be baptized differently. Okay, We're going to tell them that, hey, you're not going to see it done anymore here at this church. If you want to be a member here, that's wonderful. Like, you're not going to be able to tell any difference. You're not going to be withheld certain rights in this church or anything like that. But you're not going to see it done here because we believe differently in that area. But the, the question about whether to do it or not centers on whether or not um, a person believes that baptism is the same as circumcision in the New Testament. Um, some reasons that I believe that it's different in the New Testament is because the New Testament teaches a shift in understanding that the covenant is not passed on to people through physical descendancy. Okay? That was a misconception in the Old Testament that salvation is because you're from Abraham. And that gets squashed in the New Testament. They're constantly telling you, hey, it don't matter who your parents are. It don't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter who your parents are. Baptizing infants seems to carry over that same mentality that if your parents are saved, you're brought into the covenant. And there seems to be a shift in that understanding in the New Testament. Um i give you some other differences between the Old, Te- Old Covenant and New Covenant here in this page that I'll email you. Um, like I said, Old Covenant, it's all about physical birth. New Covenant, it's all about spiritual birth. We see that in John 3 when uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. Old Testament, you've got the physical manna. That's the bread. New Testament, Jesus is the bread. You've got physical water in the Old Testament. Jesus is the water of life in the New Testament. 
Old Testament, they worship in the temple. New Testament, our bodies are the temple. Old Testament, animal sacrifices. New Testament, we offer spiritual sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, we offer our bodies. Six, you've got physical land in the Old Testament, the promised land. New Testament, we're awaiting a heavenly land. Um, We've already kind of talked about the, the, the pattern in the New Testament is you repent, you get baptized. Infants are incapable of repentance and faith. Um, Acts chapter 15 is a discussion on whether or not circumcision should continue in the New Testament. Christian leaders get together. Acts 15, they sit down and say, hey, are we still circumcising or not? Like, we still asking Gentiles to be circumcised? Because we got some Gentiles getting saved in our church, and we're not sure if we should be doing that or not. And if we don't have to do it, we'd rather not do it. You know, like, let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. If that's not a requirement anymore, it should be a lot easier. And they come to the conclusion, yeah, stop circumcising adults. Like, don't do it anymore. Like, it's not necessary. Just just stop it. You want to do it when you're kids, for health reasons, great, but it ain't part of the church anymore. And there's no discussion about, but replace that with baptism. That's where you would expect it to be, right? Like, hey, let's get together and decide if we're still doing the Old Testament covenant sign. Chit-chat, chit-chat. No, we're not. Okay, we don't see. The Holy Spirit's not telling us to do that anymore. Great, let's stop doing that. Nobody raises their hand and says, hey, I'd like to introduce something new. I think we should start baptizing our infants. It needs to carry over in the New Testament. We need to do something for our infants. It's just absent there. There's no discussion about it. While infant baptism is not prohibited in the New Testament, it does present some dangers because it does lend itself potentially to false assurance. I've talked with kids when I would substitute teach up in Virginia. Um, I've talked with kids who would throw that card out and say, I'm good because I was, I was baptized when I was a baby. It's, it's, a, it's a ceremony that they went through, don't even remember it, and there's some dangers there. Now, because the New Testament doesn't prohibit it, that's why I, as, as the leader of this church, am not going to say that, that it's wrong that if someone has been infant baptized, that that has to change. It's not a sin to be infant baptized. The Baptist church, for the most part, has, has tried to embrace the goodness of what comes with infant baptism by doing baby dedications. So there's, there's the healthy perspective of bringing a child before the church and saying, look, we're believers. We want to raise our child in a believing home. They're part of our community, part of what we're doing. We want you as a church to be praying for them. So there's ways to embrace the healthy aspect of what infant baptism brings a lot of times without maybe necessarily bringing the danger into it as well. I don't think it's sin either way. Like I don't think it's like you don't need to confess the fact that you brought your baby to an infant baptism. Nor do you as a as an adult need to say, I gotta confess that my parents had me baptized when I was a baby. It's not a sin issue. Um, so I don't think it's something that, you know, we don't want to elevate it to that point. Another support that's used a lot of times for infant baptism is that there's passages of scriptures that talk about whole households being baptized, that maybe the leader of the household gets saved. And then it says the whole household was baptized. You have that with the Philippian jailer. Look at last two passages. I'll read Acts 1633. 
Acts 16. Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas, remember they're praying and singing in the jail. Um, They get freed from their chains, but they stick around and have conversation with the Philippian jailer. Um, Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and and all his family. A lot of times infant baptism proponents will say, look, his whole family was baptized there. Odds are that he had infants in his family and they were baptized. So we should baptize infants. But it's important to know what happens in verse 32. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They spoke the word to everybody too. Don't don't remove that from the baptism. Everybody had the word spoken to them. Everybody responded and everybody was baptized. Which lets us know everybody in the family was old enough to repent and be saved. Or at least everyone who heard the word got baptized. That's the implication there. Is that the people that were baptized were also the same people that heard the word. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1.16. That people who heard the word were the ones that got baptized. The whole family got baptized, but it was everybody in the family also hearing the word. Okay, I'll email this to you because I didn't touch on everything because I knew we were running out of time. Um, I'll let you kind of look over this and read through it again. I would encourage you to whichever side of the, the spectrum you fall on, whether you're like, oh, yeah, like definitely don't baptize infants. Or you may be on the side that says, yeah, I think we should baptize infants. I would encourage everyone to study and understand why some people believe you should baptize infants. Okay. Um, there are scriptural reasons why some people hold to it. Um, Adam and Jen have a good friend who, for the longest time, was Baptist, was against baptizing infants, and then made a dramatic shift and now believes that you should baptize infants and bases that on his study of scripture. Um, so it's important to understand, to, to know why certain people believe that and to know why you don't believe that area, both for this church but then also just for you personally. Okay? Questions about baptism that... Maybe that raises for you. Things that I need to clarify. When you're saying baptism for infants, do you mean like a dedication thing that they're doing? Or actual baptism and the family thinks they're saved? Or Most of the time it's not a, a that we think they're saved type of thing. The In the Old Testament... The, the circumcision wasn't supposed to be viewed as a salvation thing. It was meant to be shown that this child is being um, separated from the world and they're a part of a covenant community family. Okay? So in the New Testament churches that baptize infants, that's the, that's the purpose behind it. It's meant to show that this child is a part of a covenant family, um, that they're being consecrated and set apart from the world. Again, the difference that I see is that in the New Testament, um, the covenant community expands across multiple nations, not just the nation of Israel. And it's not as family-driven as the Old Testament was. Jesus says, I've come to set um, husband and wife against each other. I've come to set you know, kids from their families because not everybody gets saved a lot of times in a family. And so you have divisions that take place. A lot of times in Muslim countries... 
guy comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I got saved. Uh, I met a guy on the street, shared the gospel with me. I got saved. Get out. Like, get out of here. So there's a shift in the New Testament, too, that it's not as much family, patriarchal system, that there's individuals that are just coming into this covenant community from different nations, different backgrounds. And that's another reason, too, why I think you see a shift in the understanding of the covenant sign, that now it's just for people who have been saved. Yeah, and I think, I think you can do that, and I think you get all the healthy benefits of what infant baptism offers without confusing the purpose of baptism. Bring a child up, and, and yeah, you, you consecrate them to the church in the sense that you ask the church to be praying for your child, praying for you as parents to know how to raise that child in a gospel understanding that they have wisdom in doing that. And again, for accountability purposes, hey, if you see us doing something that we shouldn't be doing in raising our child, um, we're asking you to hold us accountable today. Like we're asking you for that. So yeah, I think that that's that's definitely important and definitely appropriate. And as we get to that point in this church, people want to do that, and we'll definitely be open and receptive to doing that. Other questions? And they mandated, the family did, that he had to be baptized. He should be baptized and go through that. And it was a standing up with the godparents saying we will raise him as a, in, in a Catholic way. But my contention had always been, like you said, how can he be baptized if he's a year old and has never made a profession of faith? And infants, to me, babies are already covered if something were to happen to them. If they're before the age of accountability, whatever that age happens to be for that individual, they're going to heaven anyway. Mm-hmm. So why baptize them? I think I think that there are religions that do believe that. Oh yeah, that baby was baptized if he dies in a car wreck next week, he's going to heaven. Right. In my opinion, and I don't know that that's true, and I think the scripture teaches that. I think it's aware something happens to that baby, he's going to heaven anyway because he's not reached the age of Right. Yeah, that's where that's where I will stand in disagreement is if infant baptism is happening for the purpose of salvation. Now, if it's someone who 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 does who does that because their understanding is covenant sign, just like circumcision didn't save, infant baptism doesn't save, but I see the correlation in the New Testament, then I'm okay with that. I'm okay with talking about that and dialoguing about that. If someone believes that that brings salvation for the child, then we've got issues. Because I do believe Scripture teaches contrary, explicitly to that. Um, and that would be something that I couldn't be in, you know, 
I couldn't accept and tolerate this for someone to teach that that brings salvation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, the bad understanding about infant baptism is way more prevalent in the Catholic Church than it would be in the Presbyterian Church. You come from a Presbyterian background or meet someone from a Presbyterian background that has been infant baptized, most often. Their understanding is based on the covenant sign, not a, um, an act of salvation. The, the misunderstanding typically about, I got baptized so I'm saved, comes from the Catholic Church. Most people coming from a Presbyterian background don't come up with that mentality that I was baptized so I'm saved. So the Catholics have, have perverted that more so than any other denomination that baptizes infants. And they've done that with the Lord's Supper. They've done that with church attendance. I mean, they've done that with all the, the ceremonial type things that the church would do. Your confirmation can be dangerous in a similar sense, too. There's some healthy things that come with that. A lot of it's just basic discipleship type stuff. But I've encountered kids both at camp at Snowbird and then just kids that I've communicated with in the public school systems who have claimed their confirmation, their class, their diploma from that class being their point of salvation. You know, hey, you know, when did you decide to follow Christ? Well, I got confirmed. I, you know, I finished my confirmation on such and such date. Great, but like, that, like that's a, like Sunday school class. Like, when did you decide to follow Jesus? So again, that's another thing that can be perverted in the church. Yep. How Sprinkling, uh, just in the regards of why would you go away from immersing, sprinkling happened um, more, I don't want to say time period to be wrong. Sprinkling came about through, one, when people started trying to baptize babies, it's not the best thing to immerse a baby in water, right? Like, um, they, they actually had babies who were drowned in the process of baptism. Um, there were also situations where you're trying to baptize a handicapped person as opposed to trying to physically lift them into a baptismal pool. It became easier to sprinkle. And then you see that kind of progress into some churches where they sprinkle adults. Like it's not just sprinkling babies. It's sprinkling adults out of convenience. It's a whole lot easier when you're building a building. If you don't have to build a baptismal pool, you save money. We'll just sprinkle and it's kind of progressed to me more of a convenience aspect, which is which has done a disservice to the picture that it's supposed to be of the gospel. So it's not like Yeah, there may be some that have drawn from that, that aspect as well. But I know it did originally start I want to say like Middle Ages when they were trying to baptize babies and they realized that that wasn't, the survival rate from that wasn't as good as they wanted. 
And so they said this will be easier. Right. 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 And I mean, I'm not going to say that there wouldn't be circumstances where there's absolutely no way to baptize someone in water that I would prohibit sprinkling. I mean, it's again, it's not a sin issue. If you got sprinkled, it's not that we need to get you in the pool next week. You know, I just think that the normative way to do it is to do it this way. But if you found yourself in a, in a you know, I don't know, out in the desert, in, you know, in some community with an unreached people group, and there's absolutely no water around, all you've got is a, is a, is a cup of water, just go ahead and get it done. You know, like, let's don't overcomplicate it and make it too legalistic to where, hey, we'll, we'll catch back with you during rainy season. I mean, um, yeah. Any other questions? Colton's asking, how do you know when you got saved if you've had multiple experiences and you're not sure which one counts? Most important thing is that you are saved. Like, that's the most important thing that you figure out. Have I responded to the gospel? If you're beyond that point, God's okay with you making a mistake about which one it was. So don't overthink it and and worry about getting to heaven and God saying, you should have been baptized again. Like, come on. You know you were saved after such and such time. You know, like, I don't, I don't think you're in danger of, like, messing it up. Like, the crucial thing is realizing that you've responded to the gospel. And, 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 just, and drilling that and making sure that, yes, like, I know the Holy Spirit's living inside of me. I know I've been born again. I know I want to follow Christ. I see evidence of that. When that exactly happened, you may struggle with. And, and it may come down to a point where you just have to, you just have to work through it to enough to where you say, this is most likely when it happened. Don't pick the earlier version just because you don't want to be baptized. Okay? Like, it could be easy to sit down and say, I don't know, but I'm going to go with the earlier one so that I don't have to get baptized again. Like, if there's enough compelling evidence and you're looking at it and you realize, you know what? Like, I got saved four years ago. Like, I wasn't five. It was four years ago. I know that's when I got saved. I know I need to be baptized. I'm going to go do it. I guarantee you next week when we're at Topi's house, nobody's going to be sitting around going, can you believe that so-and-so is getting baptized? Like, what a joke. Like, why have they got this done already? Like, how embarrassing to be that age and being baptized. Like, absolutely not. Like, it's a celebration time where we're going to be rejoicing over the fact that you've been immersed in Christ. Um, so it's certainly not a point of embarrassment. It's not something that you should, you should stray away from because I don't want to have to come forward and say that I've never been baptized. When we initially did this, we had people in the youth group come up and say, Hey, I need to do this. Like, I got to be obedient. I know I haven't been. And we baptize people at different times during, um, during our time at main event. And so we're excited to do that again if necessary. It may be that, you know, after this, after y'all think through it this week, nobody needs to be baptized next week. And we'll just swim and hang out and eat together and 
You know, we'll try it again later when we have new converts that we know need to be baptized. But we want to offer this just kind of as a, everybody get on the same page. Um, go ahead and nail it down. If you haven't been baptized, let's all start off on the same footing and, and move forward from there so that we know that when other people get saved and come in here, we can say, hey, we're only asking you to do what everybody else here has already done. You follow in obedience the way everybody else at Sovereign Hope has done as well. So yeah, I mean, I don't think you can. I don't think it's. Don't overthink it and overstress it to the point that you make a mistake. You're afraid of making a mistake. But I think it is important to come to a point to where you eliminate the other times and say, "This is when I got saved, and this is what I'm going to work off of until Jesus corrects me in heaven one day." And he brings up a valid point. He said, "You know, I thought I was saved, and then I went through a season." Right. Um, you can find support that you were saved by the fact that you came back. Because scripture says a true Christian perseveres to the end. They may have times where they begin to fall away, but they don't truly fall away. Someone who falls away into sin and never comes back never was saved. Someone who does come back, you could you could you personally, based on your individual situation, you may have been saved. And then fell away into sin for a while. And then the Holy Spirit brought you back. Others may have fallen away in sin because they weren't saved. Got the gospel again and then truly got saved. It's going to be more on an individual basis. You know, it can't be just a blanket. If you were gone for 12 years, then you probably weren't saved. But if it was only six, then you were saved. I mean, it's going to be something that you individually. And I've sat down and worked through it with some of y'all individually. And I'd be willing to do that with anybody that wants to dialogue about it. That wants... Someone to just kind of talk through it with them to help them better understand when it was they truly got saved. So if you want to do that, we, you know, I'm more than willing to do that. Any other questions? About the, the, what you were saying about the empty baptism people coming here that think that, and I agree with what you're um, saying, but not understanding. When somebody comes here, and they think their infant baptism is right now they need to be baptized again. And that you're saying that you're not going to tell them to be baptized again. Right. But my, my, my question and thought process is if they have a family, what are they going to do with their kids? Are we encouraging them to still hold on to what they believe or you're just kind of leaving it up to them? Because I was kind of confused about the, you know, what it is. No, I would say that they, they would have to function under what our church is doing as a member of this church. So, like I said, like we're not going to baptize your infant. Right. Um, you know, they will, we will teach and preach to them that they need to be believers' baptism. That needs to happen after they get saved. Um, Right, yeah, I mean, um, no, we would have to work through with that person individually, because, yeah, Tyson brings up a good point, discipleship. Um, that's obviously going to be a topic of discussion, potentially, but, you know, um, the new convert is going to need to be baptized because they've never been baptized. So it may not come up as much when you're sharing the gospel with a new believer, Um it's something that will have to be handled on you know, kind of an individual basis. Again, like it's going to be shaped by what their genuine understanding is of infant baptism. Um, but in the same way that 
You know, there's some things that, that I think we can disagree on. You can come to this church, be a member of this church, be active in this church, serve in this church with the understanding that you're coming under the authority of this church. And you'll have to kind of check some of those preference beliefs at the door in doing so. In the sense that I wouldn't tell someone they can't come to our church if they believe that speaking in tongues still happens. But if you begin to be disruptive in our service by speaking in tongues, then we'll have to address it. Because as a church, we don't think that continues. Now, if you personally think that that does, and that's something that's part of your private life, I'm not going to tell you that you can't be a member of this church. But when it, when it begins to affect what we're doing as a church, and it's not consistent with what we believe as a church, that's when it becomes a problem. And I think that would be the same with infant baptism. Um, you may personally believe that your infant baptism is good, but you know if you're teaching infant baptism in a home group or whatnot, then we're going to have to address that. Because I think that's my only thing is having somebody. Because, I mean, I, I agree with you, but if they still are holding on to that, baptism is their baptism, then why wouldn't they teach them to baptism? Right. That, that's kind of my thing. Right. Because, so, I mean, it, repentance and baptism, you know, in your notes. So I would just, you know, right. that's my thing. And individual basis, I, I mean, so, I, I just think it's a little bit. Right. Yeah. So. Any other questions? All right. If you go on to our website, um, sophope.org, there is a link on the resources page about baptism. gives you some description about baptism, a lot of the same stuff we talked about today. That's a great place to refer people to that you're talking to. There's also on that website a um, link to this baptism application that you can download and work through um, if you want to be baptized. We've got a couple of copies up here. Um, If you're interested, this is simply, and this would kind of go along with what Colton was asking, this allows you the opportunity to kind of work through your testimony to validate that you do need to be baptized. Um, and it asks you some pointed questions, asks you to recall some of the things that happened earlier in your life. Um, and this is something that we would like to sit down and talk with you about before we do the baptism next Sunday. So if you know you're interested in being baptized, you can pick up one of these or you can access it on the website, like I said. But if you are interested in being baptized next week, I would like you to personally contact me or talk to me today. Let me know and I'll contact you this week just so we can kind of sit down, dialogue about it a little bit. Make sure that you do understand what's taking place, that your understanding of baptism is, um, is mature and good, and then we'll move forward with that next Sunday. So, um, again, you can pick up one of these if you want to today, or you can access it on the website. Any other questions before I pray? Okay. God, we thank you so much for our chance today to search your scriptures and come to a better understanding of Uh, the gospel, and baptism. Um, God, we thank you for the picture of baptism, the tool that you've given us to illustrate the gospel to others. Um, God, I thank you so much for um, ultimately the salvation of everyone here. Um, God, because there are things that we can disagree about and agree to disagree about, and that's okay, and and we'll get some of those um, clarifications that we need later on in life when we're in heaven, and and we're being able to... um, to fully understand uh, 
um, who you are and your plan for us. But God, we know that at times right now we live and exist within a a church family where we're going to disagree about things. But God, I'm thankful that we can agree on the most important thing this morning. That Jesus Christ is necessary and sufficient for our salvation. God, that you have called us to repent and to believe. And when we do that, you immerse us in Christ. So that his death counts for us. His obedience counts for us. His resurrection counts for us. So God, I'm thankful for our agreement on the gospel today. I pray that as we move forward, that we would be able to be grounded and unified in that. God, I pray that this would serve as a wonderful exercise for these guys to to think through their own conversion experience when it was they passed from death to life. This would be a healthy, maturing activity for them to do. And God, for those that haven't been obedient, like they search the scriptures, they realize that they've either never been baptized or they were baptized at a point in time when they weren't saved and they feel like they need to be baptized again. God, that they would would have the courage to be obedient. They would step out in obedience and follow you in obedience. And that we'd be able to celebrate that together next week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.